uh, Dan McLaughlin, who is the executive assistant to the superintendent of the New York Ministry Network. Go ahead and give him a round of applause this morning. God bless you, man. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you again uh, this morning. Always great to be at Trinity Assembly of God. It's a wonderful church uh, full of wonderful people and uh, always great to uh, fill in for my good friend Dave when he is out of town. I have the uh, privilege of bringing uh, one of my children with me today. He's my uh, fourth child of our seven. He's six years old. This is Silas. Silas, you want to wave to everybody? You're going to hide behind your chair. I told you not to hide. Just wave to everybody. Okay, well, you can meet him later. Uh, he's six years old, and he's a joy uh, in our life and in our family, so if you want to get a chance to meet him after service, he'd be happy to shake your hand and say hi to you, wouldn't you? All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. How many of you know that, uh, that sometimes we see things the way we want to see them? instead of seeing things for how they actually are. We see things the way we want to see them instead of how they actually are. Uh, uh, some of you may have had this experience this week. We had a couple of days where there was 50 degree weather. The snow started melting. You could see the grass. I walked outside, I was like, oh, this is it. Spring, I'm getting the baseball gloves out, I'm tuning up the bikes. And then this morning, I realize what it really is, once again, another Syracuse winter, right? Well, we see things for what we want them to be, not necessarily for what they are. I do this uh, all the time, uh, and uh, I do this to justify uh, my eating habits in my life. Uh, I will see things for what I want it to be instead of what it actually is. So uh, I'll say, oh, look, carrot cake. That has vegetables in it. (laughs) It's got to be healthy. Oh, look, fruit snacks. They're shaped like real fruit. They've got to be good for you, right? Uh, oh, look, ice cream. That ice cream is dairy. Dairy means calcium. It's high in calcium content. That's good for you. See things for what I want them to be instead of what they really are. But the truth is, it's, it, sometimes it's hard for us to see things as they really are because we've seen them for a certain way a long time or we've been taught to see them a certain way. And uh, this is why stereotypes and prejudices are so, uh, such a, such a, uh, uh, so powerful in our world today, because we've been taught to see people and groups and things in a certain way. And, uh, and so uh, very often, the greater attachment we have to someone or something, the harder it is for us to see it in a new light. The longer we've seen something a certain way, it's harder for us to see it in another way. And, and we see this in all sorts of ways in our life. If you have uh, someone who you'd consider a, a hero in your life and in your world, if something bad happens to that hero or they do something that's scandalous, you, you begin to defend them right away because they're your hero and you've always seen them in a certain light. And of course, the opposite is true. If there's somebody in your life or you've always seen them in a negative light and you see them uh, as manipulative or, or they have bad motives, then everything they do, you will interpret through that lens and it's hard for you to see them a different way. We often see things for what we want them to be instead of what they actually are. This is also true in our relationships when uh, you see a young man and young woman fall hopelessly in love with each other. They see each other for who we want them to be, right? But not for who they actually are. Sometimes we're blind to their faults and their failures. 
And here in this passage, we see that the disciples are attached to Jesus and to the picture of who they want him to be. The disciples are attached to Jesus and to the picture of who they want him to be. And uh, really, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, everything Jesus has done has confirmed and reaffirmed this picture that they have in their mind of who Jesus is and who they want him to be. And everything that Jesus has done up to this point has only confirmed the picture that they were hoping for. But we get to this point in the story, in Mark's Gospel, and Jesus makes a turn. He makes an about-face, and he begins to challenge the preconceived notions that the disciples have of who he is and of what his mission is actually about. And he essentially tells them, he says, this this is who you want me to be, but now I'm going to tell you who I actually am and what I actually came to do. Let's read here in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And I believe the words are on the screen for you as well. It says, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah. And others say you are one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Jesus, But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Verse 31, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Would you pray with me one more time this morning? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the truth that it brings to our hearts. And Father, this morning it's our prayer that we would see Jesus Christ for who he is, not just for who we want him to be. And Lord, that you would help us to see our role as followers of Jesus, not for what we want it to be, but for what you actually have called us to do and to be. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. I pray that as we open up the scriptures today and and, uh, uh, explore this passage, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we see in this passage that the disciples have only half seen Jesus. They've only half seen Jesus. 
Jesus asked them, he says, who, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, Jesus, some people are saying that you are a great prophet. Maybe you're like John the Baptist, or maybe you're like the prophet Elijah. And, and for the disciples to say that, even that was a big deal. The idea that, that someone could come in the power and the anointing like the Old Testament prophets would have been, the prophet Elijah and Elisha uh, and Isaiah, all of these uh, Old Testament great prophets, that Jesus could come and be like one of those prophets, that would be a big statement for them to make in and of itself. But Peter takes it a step further. Peter says, no, you're not just a prophet. You are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one. And Peter is using a very specific term to describe Jesus in this passage when he says, you are the Messiah. When Peter says that, he's not just saying you're king and that you're Lord and that you're God. He's saying something very specific and very cultural. Because you see, the Jews at that time believed that the Messiah was going to be a superhuman leader who would come and uh, rescue God's people from their enemies and defeat all of God's enemies. Uh, This Messiah would come and regather all of God's people from the four corners of the earth and bring them back to Israel. And this Messiah would make uh, Jerusalem and Palestine the center of the world and would establish God's righteous reign throughout the earth. And so when Peter says this to Jesus, he's saying a loaded statement. He's saying, you are the Messiah. You are this person. You're not just a prophet. You are this specific figure that we have been looking forward to and hoping to see in our lifetime. And while it's Peter who says this, the other disciples inevitably believe it as well. He's just the first one to verbalize it. And Peter says what the others have believed and what they've been hoping for and that what they were hoping Jesus would reveal himself in this way. And, it, and if we read uh, other gospel accounts, we see in Matthew's account that Jesus, after Peter says this, Jesus says, Peter, uh, this was revealed to you not by men, but by God. This was revealed to you not by men, but by God. And so at this point, uh, as we look at Peter's declaration here of who Jesus is, we're thinking, wow, this is great. Jesus has proved who he was all throughout the, the beginning uh, parts of this gospel. He's, he's healed uh, people of diseases. He's performed all of these miracles. He's preached these wonderful messages. And now he's revealing himself as the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they have been dreaming of meeting and being a part of his ministry. And yet... Despite this incredible revelation that Peter has and the declaration that he makes, Jesus then begins to make a shift in his followers' understanding of what this Messiah actually looks like, of who he is and what he actually came to do. Jesus says, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the rescuer. I am the one who you've been waiting for. But guess what? It doesn't look the way you think it looks. I'm not going to be who you think I'm going to be. And Jesus does two very specific things here for his disciples and uh, uh, conversely for us today as we look at this passage. First, he shows us the kind of Messiah that he truly is and that we have to embrace if we're going to follow Jesus. He shows us the kind of Messiah that he is. And secondly, he shows us the kind of identity that we have to embrace if we're truly going to be followers of Jesus. 
And so the big twist for his disciples is this, is that this Messiah that you think who's going to come and defeat all of God's enemies and regather all of God's people and set up Jerusalem as the center of the world, this Messiah that you think is going to do all of this, actually, none of that's going to happen right now. Instead, I'm going to be a Messiah that suffers. Instead, I'm going to be a Messiah that experiences rejection. Instead, I'm going to be a Messiah that experiences a violent death. And this is, this is traumatic for the disciples. And we, we read this story, and, and we kind of we know the end of the story. We know what happens to Jesus, and we, we know because of Christianity and all that we're a part of today, we know what Jesus came to do. And yet when Jesus tells this to his disciples, this is a traumatic thing. This is not what they were expecting. All of their, all of their mental pictures and ideas of the Messiah, all the stories they had been told since they were children, all of the ideas that they had had uh, and the ways they had imagined their own importance in this process and being a part of what the Messiah was going to do, all of that was now shifting to something else. They had a mental image that involved heroic triumph and victory. And Jesus says, it's not going to be, if you follow me, it's not all about heroic triumph and victory. It is going to be about suffering, rejection, and death. Now, of course, they were familiar with passages in Scripture like the passage in Isaiah that talks about the suffering servant of God. But never before had any Jewish teacher connected the suffering servant with the Messiah. And Jesus is the first one to put these two together and say, no, they're one and the same. This suffering servant is actually going to be the Messiah. And this is a radical thing that Jesus is telling his followers, so radical that Peter becomes angry. And Peter decides that he is going to tell Jesus what he thinks about this whole thing. And uh, he decides that he's going to set Jesus straight. I love, I love Peter. He's awesome. <laughs> Jesus, I'm going to set you straight on your Messiah theology. I know that you are the Messiah, but I'm going to set you straight on what you should actually be as the Messiah. And this is what Peter does. He goes and he begins to rebuke Jesus. And to tell him that he's wrong, that he should not suffer. And Jesus, of course, responds with even greater strength. Jesus comes back at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, I, I have never uh, been called Satan by any person. Uh, and my, maybe you have. I don't know. Some of you may have had some experiences like that. But to be called Satan by Jesus himself, what an incredible thing. Jesus is identifying the fact that the opposition, that any sort of opposition to the suffering, suffering mission of the Messiah is in itself satanic. And Jesus doesn't just say that he will suffer or that he will undergo rejection and experience a violent death. Jesus says he must suffer. He says he must suffer. And by virtue of that as well, he says, I am going to the cross, and if you are going to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross and carry it alongside me. You're going to follow me into suffering, rejection, and death. Which brings us to a fair question. Why? Why? I mean, why, why suffering? Why a cross? Why did Jesus have to rescue us this way? 
Why couldn't the picture of Jesus be the picture that the disciples always imagined it would be? Why couldn't it be this picture of of a king coming in and rescuing his people, defeating all of God's enemies, regathering all of God's people, setting up his kingdom, peace and prosperity for all time? Sounds like a great plan to me. And yet Jesus says, I must suffer. I must go to the cross. And if you're going to follow me, you'll do the same thing as well. Some thoughts on that this morning. Three thoughts on that this morning. Why suffering? Why a cross? The first thought is this. Jesus went to the cross so that we could know true love. Jesus went to the cross so that we could know true love. Tim Keller actually says that all of our love, all of our human love is actually somewhat fake. All of our love is somewhat fake. And he says, in fact, there is a certain mercenary quality to all of our relationships. Why? Because at the deepest parts of who we are, we all need love. We need love like we need air, like we need water, like we need food. We need it desperately. And because of that, when we uh, have opportunity to give out love, to show love to someone else, very often we will not show love to someone else unless we perceive that somehow that person can give us something back in return. That's how we're naturally wired. And that is the inherent flaw in human love, that we love so that we can be loved in return. We love when we get a sense that we'll get, uh, we give when we, get, when we sense that we'll get, we'll get back. We love because we need to be loved back. And the truth is, is that very often, because we're wired this way, when we do not perceive that someone can love us back or give us anything in return for love, we tend to hold back our love. We tend to keep it to ourselves because we are afraid of not receiving it back. The truth is, is that when we love someone and there is potential that that love is not reciprocated back to us, that can be a painful thing. That can be a vulnerable thing. It is extremely vulnerable to love with the potential of it not being given back to us. And so we hold back. But Jesus' love for us is different. Jesus' love for us is different. Jesus takes up a cross without any guarantee that our hearts will ever turn towards him. Think about that for a second. Jesus took up the cross without any guarantee that you and I would ever love him back. It's incredible. And what's, what's more interesting is that Jesus' Jesus. Love comes from a place where he does not need us. God does not need us to love him back. He wants us to love him back, but he doesn't need us to love him back. The truth is, is that if you and I do not express any love to God for the rest of our lives in any way, it does not detract or take away from who God is. He's still God, and he is still great, and he is still all, uh, he embodies everything that he always has possessed. And so when God shows his love for us, it's not because he needs us or because he has to get something back from us. His love then is pure. God's love is pure and it's freely given without condition. 
This is the kind of love that Jesus expresses to us when he goes to the cross. And this kind of love does two things for us. This kind of love, first of all, it satisfies our need for love. It satisfies that deep desire that we have to be loved in our lives. Only God's love can fill the void in our hearts that we need for love. Only God's love can do that. Are you with me? Only God's love can do that. And so uh, when Jesus goes to the cross, he satisfies for us our deepest need for love. And the second thing that this does is that when we experience God's love, it generates true love inside of us. And it allows us to love people the same way that Christ loved us. It allows us to love people without expecting to get anything back. It allows me to love someone without any hope of being, uh, having that love returned to me in some way or some fashion. And so the love that God gives us is unconditional and it's pure, but it's also a generative love. It generates true love inside of us and allows us to love others without needing to be loved in return. This is the kind of love that Jesus says, when I go to the cross, they will never know true love unless I go to the cross. And ultimately, our love for something is really determined by what we're willing to give up for it, right? Our love for something is determined by what we're willing to give up for it. And God demonstrates the magnitude of his love for us by giving us the best thing in all of heaven, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrates his love for us by giving his very life, and he does this without any guarantee of reciprocity. In suffering, Jesus shows us the magnitude of his one-way love. The depth and profoundness of that love is transformative and generative. That's why when Paul writes about the love of Jesus Christ in Romans 8, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This kind of love, you cannot experience this kind of love in just a mere human kind of love. This is a supernatural kind of love that only God can give. And Jesus demonstrates that love for us by showing what he was willing to pay for our redemption by walking to the cross. And he says, I'm doing it and I don't even need you to love me back. I want you to, but I don't need you to. And so it's freely given, it's pure, and it's generative. It changes the way we love others. And so Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I have to go to the cross so that you can know what true love is. Secondly, Jesus goes to the cross so that we could know true forgiveness. He goes to the cross so that we can know true forgiveness. The truth about forgiveness is this, is that forgiveness always costs us something. Forgiveness always costs us something. Any debt can be forgiven. But the cost of that debt or the cost of that offense does not go away. Someone has to pay for it. If I go to your house and I knock over a lamp and I break a lamp in your home, you can forgive me, but someone still has to pay for that lamp. And so even if you forgive me, either you have to pay for that lamp yourself or you can say to yourself, we didn't need that ugly old lamp anyway in this house. We're just going to deal with it being a little bit less bright. But there's still a consequence to that brokenness. There's a consequence to that debt. And the truth is, is that forgiveness always costs us something. When we forgive someone, we're choosing 
not to allow them to suffer, but to absorb that suffering upon ourselves. We're choosing not to allow them to suffer, but to absorb that suffering upon ourselves. And so, I want you to get this this morning. This is, this is big. When Jesus, when Jesus asks us to forgive, he's not just saying, hey, let, let the debts incurred against you, just, just let them roll off your back. Just don't even worry about them. When people hurt you or offend you or abuse you or mistreat you, just, just forget about it. Don't even worry about it. That's not what he's saying. When Jesus asks us to forgive, he's calling us to suffer. When Jesus asks us to forgive, he's calling us into pain. He's calling us to absorb the cost of that offense upon ourselves. Because that's what he did for us. And the interesting thing about forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is actually the only way we'll ever experience reconciliation. Forgiveness is the only way we can ever find reconciliation. Because the alternative to forgiveness is what? The alternative to forgiveness is revenge. The alternative to forgiveness is exacting justice, requiring restitution. And those things may be just and they may be right and they may solve the problem of debt, but they do not solve the problem of relationship. Forgiveness is the key to reconciliation. So it makes sense that if true forgiveness involves absorbing the cost of debt upon ourselves, that God would use suffering in order to restore our relationship with him. And so in going to the cross, Jesus absorbs every offense ever committed upon himself so that we don't have to. He suffers so that we don't have to. He suffers so that we might be forgiven. He suffers so that we might find reconciliation. And as we suffer as Christ followers, we do this the same way. The truth is that the most redemptive form of suffering is when we absorb the offense of others upon ourselves. We suffer so they don't have to. And this is really the heart of any kind of suffering that Jesus calls us to in our lives. Because how many of you know that not all suffering is life-giving and not all suffering is sacred? Jesus isn't saying, anytime you suffer, oh, you get another jewel in your crown in heaven. Not everything you suffer for is worth suffering for. Not everything you suffer for is valuable. And the truth is, we all suffer for something, right? We all suffer for for what we value and what we believe is important. We suffer so that we can get ahead in our careers. We suffer so that we can own the things that we want to own and be the kind of person that we want to be. We make sacrifices and we go through pain. And maybe you work out a lot and you suffer so that you can have that perfect body. Whatever it is that you do, you suffer. But not all suffering is life-giving and not all suffering is sacred. But suffering for the sake of Jesus is. And so when Jesus says, I want you to follow me into suffering, this is the kind of suffering he's talking about. Suffering for the sake of reconciliation. Suffering for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation. So that those who are far from God can come near him. Jesus didn't just suffer 
as a demonstration. He didn't just suffer to say, look at how much pain I can endure. He suffered for a purpose. And that purpose was so that you and I could have a relationship with the Father. He suffered so that we might know true forgiveness, so that we could be reconciled to God. And finally, Jesus went to the cross so that we could find true life. He went to the cross so we could find true life. It's a question worth asking. Why, why did Jesus' death have to be so violent and so disgraceful? I mean, couldn't he have just died of natural causes? Or couldn't he have just picked a death that was much easier? Maybe he could have jumped off a cliff or something a lot less awful and traumatic and agonizing and torturous. But as we understand the atoning work of Jesus, we understand that he's not just absorbing the penalty for one sin or for one person, but for every sin and every person. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's absorbing the penalty of every murder, of every child molestation, of every adulterer, of every swindler, of every crime, conscious and unconscious, ever committed against the law of God throughout all time. Jesus is going to the cross for that. Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus doesn't just walk into death, he walks into the most violent death possible, a death on a cross. And when he does this, he defeats death itself. You know, uh, I think for many of us, death can be a scary thing. I know when you're, when you're young, when you're a child, you, you think you're invincible and you never think about death. You think you're going to live forever. Um, but as you get older and you experience more of life and maybe you lose a friend or a loved one, as you begin to experience the aches and pains in your own body and you realize that this life isn't forever, we come closer and closer to the grips of the reality that death is in our future. And that can be a scary thing. That can be a frightening thing and a fearful thing. But what's interesting about Jesus is that Jesus... Jesus does not do what every other human does. Every other human in history has always tried to avoid death, to try to live and preserve our lives as long as possible. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't try to avoid death or pain or suffering. Jesus walks toward, towards death. Jesus walks into death. He embraces death, and he defeats death. And so, and so when Jesus calls us, to follow him by dying to ourselves, we don't have to be afraid. First of all, because he's already gone there ahead of us and he's already defeated the power of what he's asking us to walk into. We don't have to be afraid because Jesus has already defeated death and in following him into death, I find new life. And when it comes to the actual death of my physical body, I don't have to fear that either. Because with Jesus, with Jesus I know that 
death isn't the worst thing. It actually can be the best thing. And in this, Jesus is giving us here a picture of who he is and the identity that we embrace when we follow him. And this is important because very often, like the disciples, we can only half see Jesus sometimes. We see him as the king. And when we see ourselves in light of being a part, uh, a follower of the king, we say, yes, Jesus is the king, and I'm with the king. I'm on the winning side. And that's true. But Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. And he says, if you want to follow me, you're going to carry your cross too. And we're going to walk into pain. We're going to walk into suffering. We're going to walk into rejection. We're going to walk into death. We're going to walk into the scariest things, the things that everyone else tries to avoid and tries to stay away from. Why? Because there is a world that needs to know what true love is. There is a world that needs to experience true forgiveness. And there is a world that needs to experience true life. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? And as we do, I believe that the response calls for two very specific things this morning. First is this. First question we have to ask ourselves is, do I, do I see Jesus for who he really is? Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never taken that step forward and, and said, God, I want to give my life to you. You've seen Jesus from afar, but you haven't seen him up close for who he is. And I hope this morning you understand that he's not a God who's angry. He's not a God who's calling out to exact justice. He's already done that through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's taken all of that upon himself when he took up that cross for us. And so the question I want you to ask this morning is, do I see Jesus for who he really is? Or am I seeing him for who I want him to be? And the second question I need you to ask yourself this morning is that as, as we see Jesus for who he is, as we see him as this king on the cross, am I following him into that identity? Am I following him into that identity? I can't tell you this morning what ways God may be calling you to suffer or what things God may be calling you into that are, is painful, or some areas in your life that you may need to die to in your life. I can't answer that question for you. But what I can tell you is this, is that when we follow Jesus Christ, he calls us into those moments. Not for the sake of hurting us, not for the sake of torturing us, or for the sake of proving anything, but for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of forgiveness, for the sake of love and life. And as you examine your hearts this morning, I encourage you to ask yourself, God, what ways are you calling me to lean in to difficult moments? What ways are you calling me, God, to lay down my life? What ways are you calling me, God, to follow you with complete abandon so that every person in my life may experience forgiveness and reconciliation and love and life that Jesus offers?